Welcome to the History of Christianity podcast with Stephen Bedard. This episode is a part of a series of lectures that I gave for a course on Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels at Tyndale University College in Toronto. I encourage you to check out the webpage for that program, which is tyndale.ca slash dcp, and also check out my webpage at historyofchristianitypodcast.com. And if you want to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash hopesreason and support in any way you are able. Thank you, and God bless. One of the things that we really haven't talked about, which is pretty important if we're going to look at who Jesus was, is actually to ask the question, did Jesus actually exist? Well, of course, he exists. Everyone knows that Jesus existed. You can ask the most militant atheist uh, who doesn't believe in God. They'll say that, yeah, Jesus existed. Well, not everyone will say that Jesus existed, although doubts about his, his existence are relatively recent. It really was only happening, starting to happen, and even then, uh, by very, very few people in the 1800s. Into the 20th century, uh, a few more people began to doubt whether or not Jesus existed, but even so, that is still a very minority report when it comes to to Jesus. By far, historians, Bible scholars, religion scholars will affirm that indeed Jesus does exist. However, there is growth in the belief that Jesus didn't exist. And this is something that's called the Jesus myth theory. Sometimes it's called the Christ myth theory. And so it's been around for a while in different forms. And it has grown, I think, for for two reasons. One is uh, because of the rise of the the new atheism and that uh, more radical skepticism. And this has come about uh, really from the time of September 11th, uh, 2001, when people saw what could happen through religion. Not that it's really religion that's responsible for that. There's a whole lot of political and other things that was going on behind those attacks, but but anyways, within our society, within our culture, there are those who looked at that and said, wait a minute, religion is dangerous. And so there's a new version of atheism that came out, the new atheism. And this uh, new atheism wasn't new in terms of coming up with better or newer arguments against the existence of God, but rather it was a more aggressive form of atheism. And one of the things that came out of that is perhaps uh, some deeper skepticism about all areas of religious life, and that included questioning uh, whether or not Jesus lived or not. And and to put into larger context, that same kind of uh, skepticism goes for all religions. And so you'll find people who, um, who doubt whether or not Moses existed, There are those who doubt whether or not uh, the Buddha existed. There are also those who doubt whether Muhammad existed. You can go and do a search uh, online and you'll find that there's a number of books that argue that uh, Muhammad was just a legend that was just created long after the the events described in the Quran. 
that's not as popular a theory because Muslims don't take that very well. And so it's, there's not a lot of freedom to discuss it in that way. But within Christianity, uh, we are, are faced with these uh, arguments that perhaps Jesus didn't exist either. So uh, that's, that's part of it. The other part of why this has grown is simply the Internet. Uh, if you want to uh, publish an idea, all you have to do is write it up on your computer and hit publish, put it on Facebook, put it on Twitter, put it on your blog, create your own website. Uh, anyone can publish anything because of the internet. You can publish your own books. Self-publishing is very easy. I've done it myself. There's nothing wrong with self-publishing. However, it, it has created an environment in which anyone can say anything and people have access to it. It gets right across the world. So between those two things, there's been a dramatic increase in the popularity of the Jesus myth theory. So there's basically two parts to the Jesus myth. One is that there is no historical evidence for the existence of Jesus as a person. And the second part of it is that the the Jesus we find in our Gospels, that they, those stories are based upon pagan myths. That's what it's all about. They're just borrowing from other mythology that's out there, other stories that were around in that area of the world, and it was just kind of repackaged, given some Jewish clothing, and that became what we have in the Gospels. And so that a lot of people will believe those things as well. Now, you don't necessarily have to have both of these. So, for example, we talked about the Da Vinci Code. In the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown argues for a form of the Jesus myth. Now, he doesn't dismiss the existence of Jesus. In fact, it's a really important part of his story. But he does argue that the Jesus in our Gospels is based on these, these pagan myths. So there are some authors who will say that, yeah, perhaps there was a Jesus of Nazareth who was around, who lived at that time and, and did some things. But the Jesus we have in our Gospels is so far removed from him, it's really closer to these other pagan myths. So that's what's going on with the, uh, the Jesus myth. So we're going to look at uh, both parts of this theory, whether or not there is historical evidence for Jesus, and uh, whether the Jesus of the Gospels is based on pagan myths. Those who hold to the Jesus myth will say that uh, we just don't have the evidence. The, the amount of evidence that we would want, we should have um, texts and texts and texts of reports and stories and testimonies about Jesus. We should just have them like crazy. We should have all of the Roman documents, the court documents from his trial. We should have descriptions by Jesus' followers, but also by his enemies as well. All of the, the people, uh, we're, we're told that, you know, like 5,000 people were fed by him. You know, we should at least have a few hundred reports from there. Uh, we should have a lot. There are other uh, historians who lived at that time, other Jewish writers that were uh, around in the first century. We should have reports by them. All of these things are missing. Therefore, Jesus never existed. That's, that's kind of the, the argument that goes there. And I would say that we need to actually start with what would we realistically expect if Jesus really lived and he was something like what we find in the Gospels, 
what would we expect to find about him? What kind of testimony, what kind of historical evidence? Well, when we do that, we need to take into account uh, a number of things. One of them is the uh, literacy rate of first century Palestine, which we don't know exactly what it is. There's a, a number of different theories out there, but they're all pretty much agreed that it wasn't particularly high. We shouldn't think of like an 80% literacy rate or anything like that. Maybe it was like 5%. Only certain types of people would have been able to, to read and to write. And so when you're thinking about all of these people who were hearing Jesus preach, who were witnessing his miracles and all that kind of thing, we should not expect that there would be hundreds of them writing this down in their, in their little journal or their diary or whatever, or sending a, a note to their, uh, you know, their cousin uh, in, in Judea or whatever. We should not expect that at all. They just wouldn't be able to write. They're not going to be able to record it in that way. So we need to take that into account. And we also have to take into account, we don't know if anyone at one of these events did write down a few lines about what was going on. Because we shouldn't expect that all of that would survive. We think of Israel as being a very, very dry place. And there are certain parts of Israel that are. But there's a lot of places that aren't. Jerusalem has been known to have snow. I've seen pictures of, of the Temple Mounts just covered in snow. I mean, it can be pretty wet there. And so we shouldn't think that uh, a little scrap of paper is necessarily going to survive for 2,000 years. It, it's not likely to happen. Now, you might be asking, well, what about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Uh, they've lasted. Why wouldn't that mean that others would last as well? But that's actually the exception that proves the rule. The, the reason why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so valuable and so important to us is that was the least thing that we expected. We didn't expect them to actually live this long, to be undisturbed for that long. And even being uh, in a very dry area of Israel, hidden away in caves, still there was a lot of rot that took place and there's a lot of holes and, and, and uh, parts of it that have decayed. So we have to take that into account as well. The other thing that is, is often said is that they act as if we have this huge pile of Jewish writings from the first century. And we have a huge pile of Roman writings, including from that, that area of the Roman Empire. And with all of these pages and pages of manuscript, for some reason, mysteriously, there is no description of Jesus. That's, that's kind of the impression that they give. But the problem is, that is not the case. We actually don't have a lot of Roman accounts uh, a lot of the Roman writings from that particular time are missing. We've lost them. There's, there's historians who were writing around that time that we wish we had their stuff, but they're gone. Uh, same thing with Jewish writings. Uh, we don't have a lot of Jewish writings from the first century. This is, again, why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important, because that just uh, exploded our reserve of of Jewish writings, so the resources that we had to understand the first century, uh, we just did not have very much for that. So it's not as if there's a tremendous amount of manuscripts out there and then mysteriously Jesus is missing. The truth is we have hardly anything 
whether Jewish or Roman or anything from that particular area, from that particular time. So we should not be surprised that we don't have that much. The other thing that, that people will say is, well, you know, we can look around now and we can see that Christianity currently is the largest religion in the world. We can look at, uh, at 20 centuries of Christianity, the impact that it has had all around the world. It, it, Jesus is probably the most influential human being who ever lived. So if that's the case, why wouldn't the Romans have made, made a bigger deal during the first century? They should have just known all this and uh, recorded what was going on and acknowledged that this great event took place. Well, the problem with that is there's no way that those Roman writers would in any possible fashion be able to predict the impact that Jesus would have or the influence Christianity would have around the world, or that Christianity would eventually take over the Roman Empire, that it would become the largest religion in the world, that so much would take place. Uh, as far as the, the Romans were concerned, during the first century, they thought of Christianity as being this uh, tiny little sect within Judaism who had some weird beliefs. They are kind of annoying, but not really that big of a deal. As long as they could get them to uh, do their little bit of emperor worship once a year, uh, no problem. But they certainly did not think that Christianity was going to have the impact that it ultimately did have. So to say that they should have expected all of these things and therefore should have reported on Jesus accordingly, that just does not make sense. It's just not uh, reasonable by any means. So we need to take all of those things into account. And if that is true, what would we expect for evidence for Jesus? Well, I think that it would be reasonable to expect that some of his followers would want to say something about Jesus. That would seem to make sense, that they would record some of his teachings, some of his actions, that kind of thing. That sounds like a, a rational idea. Uh, we might also expect that there be some kind of minor mention by Josephus. So we wouldn't expect Josephus, the, the first century Jewish historian, to make a big deal about Jesus, because that's not what he's writing on. Uh, he, his main books are the Antiquities of the Jews and the Jewish War. And he's writing for a very specific purpose, and that is really to write an apologetic about the Jewish people for his Roman patrons. That's really why, why he's writing. And so in his books, especially the Antiquities, he does talk about a number of other Jewish leaders, religious leaders, messiahs that were around. And so we would expect, perhaps, that he might mention something about Jesus, but not a lot. We would also perhaps think that some, some of the Roman writers, especially a little bit later on, maybe a few decades past, that they might give some kind of passing nod to Jesus. Again, they're not going to know that Jesus was going to have such an impact. They're not going to know that Christianity is going to take over the Roman Empire. But uh, Christianity is starting to create some disturbance, perhaps, uh, especially as Christians begin to distinguish themselves from their Jewish brothers and sisters. As uh, Christianity becomes more Gentile than Jewish during that divide, 
we would expect the Romans would sort of notice that something is happening there. They might mention something, but really not a lot. They're not going to care a whole lot about Jesus. We also might think that uh, later Jewish traditions might remember something about Jesus. So we're talking about the rabbinic uh, traditions that uh, were compiled centuries later, and we wouldn't necessarily expect them to be entirely uh, factual, probably have uh, a lot of legend added to them, and uh, there's probably some harsh feelings, because by that time, Judaism and Christianity were having some conflict with each other. But, you know, it'd be possible that they would mention something about Jesus. So I think that's what we would expect. That would be realistic expectations if we are looking for historical evidence for Jesus. So let's see what we find. Well, what we do find is four biographies by followers of Jesus. We have, in the first century, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've already said that they belong to the genre of biography. And so that's, uh, that's some pretty good evidence. That's actually probably a little bit better than we would have expected to have, but that's indeed what we do have. And we also have some traditions by Paul. And I'll get a little bit more into that in a moment. But uh, Paul, who was also a follower of Jesus, although uh, he became a follower of Jesus after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, he says something about Jesus as well. Uh, we do have a couple of mentions by Josephus, and I'm going to get into that a little bit more. There's not a lot, but there is a little bit. There are some Roman writers who mention something about Jesus, and the most well-known of these are Tacitus, Suetonius, and Pliny the Younger. Then we have some later accounts found in the Jewish Talmud. So uh, those last two there, the, the Roman writers and uh, the, uh, the Jewish writings in the Talmud, we're not going to really get into that tonight. Uh, the Roman writers there, uh, it's kind of gravy. It doesn't, the foundation for our understanding of the historical Jesus is not really based upon them. These are just kind of things that are added on that we can take a look at and say, yeah, that, that helps us. But that's not really the foundation of our argument. And when it comes to the Jewish Talmud, that was compiled around the 6th century. So that's pretty late. And we don't even have anything in the, uh, the Jewish Mishnah, which is earlier, the 280. So it, it's interesting for us to look at that as these traditions that were held on, they got passed down and eventually got included in these rabbinic writings but they're not near as valuable as the first two sections that we have, the biographies and Josephus. And so that's what we're going to spend our, our time with. So there are some criticisms that are used against the gospel. If you spend some time talking to a person who holds to the Jesus myth, they'll tell you straight out that there is no evidence for... Jesus as a historical figure. There's no evidence whatsoever. And you'll say, well, that's kind of funny, because I, I think that the Gospels are, are pretty good evidence. And they'll say, you can't use that. They will dismiss the Gospels as historical evidence. And, and these are the reasons why. Uh, first of all, they'll say that the Gospels are biased. That is, they were written by followers of Jesus, 
who had an agenda and a reason to write in a certain way. We would want unbiased historical text. Problem with that is there's no such thing as unbiased historical text. This is true in the ancient world. So every ancient historian, ancient biographer, they all have a bias, whether it's religious, philosophical, or political, whatever it is, they have a bias. So for them to say we can't use the Gospels because they're biased, that is just not the way historians work because you wouldn't be able to do any history. Even modern historians and biographers, all of them have a bias. If we were to say we will only use unbiased <coughs> historical sources, we would have to throw away our entire historical library. All of the knowledge that we have about history would have to go because it's all based on biased sources. You acknowledge bias, you should acknowledge what the bias, you take it in, into account, but you don't dismiss it as historical just because it's biased. Then they'll say that you can't use the Gospels because they are scripture. Okay? Once something is considered to be scripture, it's no longer <coughs> historical. But does that make sense? So the fact is the the final agreement of the, the final form of the canon for the New Testament really took place around the end of the 4th century. Does that mean that the Gospels were fine historical sources right up to the end of the 4th century, and then as soon as the church agreed and said these four belong to the New Testament canon, that all of a sudden they lost their historical value? And what would happen if every denomination in the world today gathered together for this mega conference and we decided, you know what, we're going to take the Gospel of Luke out of the canon. We're just going to remove Luke from the canon. Would that mean now we can use Luke as a historical source because now it's been removed out of the category of Scripture? You see, whether something belongs to the category of Scripture or not really has nothing to do with its historical value. Uh, you may or may not be familiar with Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is an agnostic uh, New Testament scholar. Uh, he used to be an evangelical uh, Christian. Uh, he lost his faith, and now he regularly writes books that are attacking the authority of Scripture, uh, attacking uh, different aspects of Christianity. So he's, he's no friend of the church. However, Jesus mythicists have kind of hoped that he would be a good source for them. And so he's been invited to, uh, he's been invited by atheists uh, where they've tried to get him to acknowledge that probably Jesus didn't exist. And as a New Testament scholar, he's like, well, no, there's lots of historical evidence. So eventually he got asked about this so often, he wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist? And I've read the book. It's actually not bad. And uh, in it, he actually talks about this idea of scripture. And he makes it clear that just because something belongs to the category of scripture does not mean that it loses historical value. If we want to understand early Islam, we are going to look at the Quran, are we not? I mean, it would just make sense to look at it. We don't say, well, we can't look at the Quran because it's Muslim scripture. No, it is an early Muslim writing. We need to take it into account. That's just the way we do history. And so that's, uh, that's pretty important. 
Uh, they'll also say the Gospels are too late. They're too far removed from the actual events. And we talked about different dating for the Gospels. And even with the late dating, the fact is the Gospels are relatively close in time to the events being described, the, the, uh, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. They are very close. And in general, if you look at other uh, ancient historical figures, and if you look at the writings that are about them, the biographies we have, the histories that we have, most often they are far later than what we have for the Gospels and Jesus. Uh, it is actually very, very close uh, to the events. So we are, we're doing well with that. Then they'll say that there are differences between the Gospels. And of course, that's what we're, one of the things we're looking at in this course. When we look at the Synoptic Gospels, yeah, there are certain differences between uh, Mark and Matthew and Luke, but that's exactly what we want as historians, right? We want there to be some evidence of independent traditions. That's exactly what we would want. In fact, if they were exactly the same, we would be saying, well, you know, we don't really have three or four sources. We just have copies of the, of the same source. But what we find in the Synoptic Gospels, as well as John, evidence of some independent sources. And also, when you look at uh, other ancient writings that are dealing with the same... Uh, events and the same figures in history, very often there are differences. So, for example, Josephus, I mentioned his two most important writings are the Antiquities of the Jews and the Jewish War. Now, there's a, a, an overlap in there. Uh, there's a certain part where he's dealing with the same events in the first century in the Jewish War as well as in his Antiquities. And so we can compare them. And when you can compare them, you find that there is uh, quite a bit of difference. Even though he's the same author writing within you know, a couple decades of each other, these two writings, <coughs> excuse me, there is, there's differences between his accounts. Not just like minor differences, like they can be quite major differences, but that's what we find. Uh, and then when we look at accounts of... Uh, of Roman history, say, when we compare uh, Tacitus and Suetonius, when they're dealing with the same events. Again, there's differences. But none of that makes us question whether or not we should be using these sources or whether or not the people being described in these sources actually live. We expect those differences to be there. That's the nature of history. And that's one of the exciting things about history, because we can sort through that kind of thing. And then the final thing they'll say is, we can't use the Gospels because they, they include the supernatural. Uh, we want something that is pure, dry, historical, and uh, you know, reflects our, our post-enlightenment uh, skepticism about the supernatural. Well, I would say a number of things. First of all, um, that's presupposing that the supernatural is completely impossible. And that's a relatively recent assumption, and it's not even universal. Uh, there are many places around the world where 
Uh, there are assumptions that supernatural can happen. And to be honest, I see a lot of that even within uh, the West, within North America. There are many people, and I'm not just talking about Christians, uh, non-Christians, who believe in something, some kind of supernatural forces and, and whatever. You know, people do talk about miracles, people talk about angels, and these are, are things that, uh, that many people still believe in. Uh, and definitely within the first century, the belief in the supernatural was very popular. There was no assumption that everything had to be purely naturalistic. Um, they accepted that these things would happen. And you can see in uh, different histories and biographies, uh, even ones that are dealing, say, with like a Roman emperor or, or something like that, where they will talk about something that happened supernaturally. They'll talk about prodigies. A prodigy would be like um, someone, uh, someone is able to supernaturally do something that they wouldn't normally be able to do, and that's a, a sign from the heavens that uh, you know, something is wrong. Uh, you know, people are watching for you know, like comets and all kinds of other things. They're looking for signs, supernatural signs. Uh, there are examples of uh, Roman generals who refuse to go into battle because they're waiting for the sign that they, they need. So if we, again, dismissed everything that, that included something supernatural in it, then we would be losing much of our ancient history because they uh, were pre-enlightenment. They did not have a bias against the supernatural. And so um, when you look at all of those things, really the Gospels are good sources for us. And the criticisms that are leveled against them are just not convincing. In fact, I, having studied history, and I have an interest in history even beyond New Testament studies, most historians would love what we have with the Gospels when it comes to Jesus. They would love to have something like that for Socrates. You know, that would be amazing if we had that. Or many other uh, ancient figures. So we're doing very well with, with the Gospels. But Jesus had other followers, and that includes Paul. One of the things that you'll see from people who argue for the Jesus myth, is they'll say that Paul never mentions the historical Jesus. Uh, that's not to say he doesn't talk about Jesus. He talks about Jesus, but he's mostly talking about the exalted Christ, the glorified Christ at the right hand of the Father, uh, this sort of cosmic figure, not really uh, the, the Jesus of history, not the, the one who actually walked around in Galilee and Judea and did all these things. And they'll say he never, ever speaks of that Jesus. Well, that is simply false, okay? He uh, very much talks about it. I, I wrote a, uh, an article for the McMaster Journal of uh, Theology and Ministry on uh, how Paul speaks about the historical Jesus in 1 Corinthians. Now, he talks about historical Jesus in other books as well, but 1 Corinthians in particular has a lot of information about the historical Jesus. Now, I will say there are certain things that, we, that Paul doesn't talk about. So Paul never talks about the virgin birth. It's never mentioned. Uh, he never really talks about 
the miracles of Jesus either. And nor does he share parables of Jesus. So when they say that Paul never speaks about the historical Jesus, that's really what they mean. They're saying that uh, Paul doesn't address those particular things. But that doesn't mean he doesn't address anything. He does. And so in 1 Corinthians, there's a number of examples, and I won't go into them now, but there are some examples of how Paul is quoting some of the, the teachings of Jesus. He refers to them. He also refers to certain events. So in my church, when we have communion in our service, I often read the account of the institutional Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians. Uh, there's not really a reason why I don't use uh, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. I mean, those are good, good versions as well. It's just my, my habit, my tradition, is to quote from 1 Corinthians. But I couldn't do that if Paul never talked about it. And so he actually shares the story of Jesus gathering with his disciples the night before the crucifixion, uh, celebrating the Passover dinner, and using the, the bread and the cup as images to describe what would happen spiritually through his broken body and his shed blood. So that's a, a very clear example. Uh, another example is actually about the, the resurrection of Jesus, and we're going to get into that in our final lecture. I will just say that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks in a way that uh, he expects his, his readers to understand they can go to Jerusalem and talk to eyewitnesses and to know that these things actually happen. I've read accounts by uh, Jesus mythicists, and when they come to a passage that seems to contradict what they say, now I'm not saying that they say that specifically about the institution of the Lord's Supper, but certain other things, they will say, well, that was added later. So anything that's there, anything that's inconvenient, Later Christians added it. That's all you have to say. There doesn't have to be any textual evidence. It's not like it's missing in the earliest manuscripts, and then later on it appears. They'll just say, oh, well, that's, uh, I've already decided that this is it. Since we're going to start with the assumption that Paul never talks about this, when we come to a passage like this, whatever he's talking about, it's not this. That's all, because we've already decided he doesn't know about the, uh, the historical Jesus, or doesn't uh, talk about him. So uh, that actually brings us to the, the next thing is, so why doesn't he talk more? Because that would be kind of neat, wouldn't it, if, if Paul shared a little bit more. You know, when we, we read about what he says about communion and the institution of the, the Lord's Supper, you know, it'd be nice if there was more that was there. Like if he talked about the feeding of the 5,000, or if he shared some parables, uh, perhaps even some teachings, maybe teachings that were not found in the, the Gospels, some, some extra things there, some added biographical information. Why doesn't he do that? And I think there's a, a number of reasons why he doesn't do that. One is just the purpose of his writing. He, when he is writing his epistles, I don't think that Paul's thinking, oh, this is going to be great theological content for a 21st century Western church. They're just going to find so much information from here. They're just going to love it because I'm writing the Bible, and they're going to love the Bible. That's not what he's thinking. Uh, he is 
writing for very specific reasons. So there is trouble at the church in Corinth. There is trouble at the church in Rome. There's something going on at Philippi. So he is writing with those needs in mind. And he's writing according to the genre of an epistle or a letter. He's not writing a gospel or a biography. And so, yes, he will pull out little biographical tidbits about Jesus, but only for very specific reasons. And, to, again, give it a little bit more context, he does the same thing with himself. Paul does not give a lot of biographical information about himself in his letters. He does give some, but he gives it for very specific reasons. So, for an example, um, the, we, we know that Paul's uh, original name or his other name was Saul, right? We also know he was from the city of Tarsus. So we will often refer to Paul as Saul of Tarsus. Did you know that nowhere in his letters does he refer to either one of those things? He does not mention his name as Saul, and he does not mention being from the city of Tarsus. Why doesn't he? Because there was no point. It wasn't a part of the requirements that were there for whatever situation he was dealing with. He only shares biographical information either about himself or about Jesus if it fits his purposes. That is it. So that's a, a big part of what's going on. So it is just inaccurate to say that Paul never speaks about Jesus. Would it be nice if he had given us a little bit more information? Of course, it would be great. But he didn't, and we need to be happy with what we have. And he is a good source for us to fill in some of the details about who Jesus was. So our, our next source that we look to as being uh, very helpful for understanding uh, that Jesus existed is that of Josephus. So he's this first century Jewish historian, writes the Antiquities of the Jews and Jewish War, a couple other writings as well. And for us as Christians trying to understand what he has for us in terms of reconstructing the areas that we're interested in, uh, there's a number of passages that he has. One is a, a reference to John the Baptist. And he talks about the death of John the Baptist. And it's a very interesting passage. We're not going to spend time on it right now. But he, he talks about it, and it's a, a independent tradition from what we have in the Gospels. He's not just copying out the same thing that we have in the Gospels. It is, uh, I would say, compatible with it because it's still referring to Herod uh, and the conflict that was going on there, but it is clearly independent. It's not one copying from the other. So uh, that is one thing that's of interest to us. He also refers to the death of James, and this is James, not one of the twelve apostles, but James, the brother of Jesus. And in this passage, he describes what happened to James, and refers to James as the brother of Jesus. So those two things are particularly useful for us. But there is more. And there's one passage that is a bit more important. And this is called the, the Testimonium Flavianum. Okay, Because uh, Josephus 
he took on the, uh, the Roman name uh, Flavius, so that's why it was uh, given to him. And this is what it says. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them spending a third day restored to life. For the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now that's great, but do you notice a problem at all here in this? So, uh, he's a traditional Jew. Uh, he, he actually talks about having spent time with a, n- a number of the different uh, Jewish groups, but he primarily identifies as a Pharisee. Now, look at this account of Jesus as a Jewish Pharisee who is not a follower of Jesus. Would such a person say things like, well, uh, performing surprising deeds, um, if indeed one ought to call him a man, uh, he was the Christ, uh, that he appeared to them the third day restored to life, uh, that the prophets foretold these things. Uh, like It really sounds too Christian for a non-Christian Jew to, to write. It just doesn't seem plausible that a, uh, a non-Jewish Christian would say something quite so strong as that. And so, people who hold to the Jesus myth will say, therefore, this is a forgery, okay? That originally... Josephus said nothing about Jesus because he had never heard of Jesus. And some Christian just added this, just wrote it out and stuck it in there because they thought, wouldn't that be great if, uh, if Josephus said something about Jesus? And they're partially right. Partially, okay? Because this really looks like it was written by a Christian. But it doesn't necessarily mean that... Josephus said nothing about Jesus. We don't have to go all or nothing. It's not either Josephus knew nothing about Jesus or Josephus believed that he was the Christ and had been raised from the dead. There's something in between. It is possible that Josephus said something about Jesus and that later on a Christian looked at that and said, well, that's okay but I could do better than that. We can, we can spruce this up a little. And so that is the majority view today among historians, Josephus scholars, New Testament scholars, and so on, that Josephus said something about Jesus. I mentioned uh, Bart Ehrman earlier. He would agree with that and say that, that Josephus said something. So some people have reconstructed what Josephus likely originally said. And there's a number of versions of what this reconstruction would look like, but this is one. Now, again, listen to this through the, uh, the eyes of a, a non-Christian Jew. How do you listen through your eyes? Listen to this through the, the ears 
of a non-Christian Jew if they would write something like this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure, and he gained a following both among many Jews and many of the Greek origin. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, and the tribe of Christians so named after him are not extinct at this day. Now that seems a little bit more like what we would expect Josephus to write, and it fits more with other accounts of other Jewish leaders and uh, religious leaders, messiahs, and so on that he talks about. That's more plausible. And so a lot of scholars would say he probably said something like that. So when a, a Jesus mythicist says uh, Josephus' reference to Jesus is just uh, a forgery, it is not clear that that is the case at all, that probably the majority view is that Josephus did say something. And there's no reason to doubt any of the references to John the Baptist or James, the brother of Jesus. So we should be careful in saying that uh, Josephus says nothing. Now, sort of to add on to this, they will then say, well, why doesn't Philo say anything about Jesus? Now, Philo uh, was a... Uh, he lived before Josephus, but he was a contemporary of Jesus. He was a, a, a Jewish philosopher who lived in Alexandria, Egypt. Why doesn't he talk about Jesus? Well, first of all, uh, Philo doesn't talk a whole lot about what was happening in Galilee or Judea or anything like that. He was not a historian. He was a philosopher. His, his purpose was to write about the Jewish scriptures, the Torah, to interpret it through Greek philosophy, and that's what he did. So he's, he doesn't talk about these other things because he's not all that interested in it. He's not living in that area around Jesus. And certainly by 50 AD, which is when Philo dies, he probably did not know the impact that Jesus would have had by that time. Uh, much of the, uh, the New Testament had not been written at all yet by 50 AD. Uh, so there's just no way that he would, have, he would have been able to predict that. So I, I think that the silence by Philo really has nothing to do with this. So in conclusion about our evidence... Did Jesus exist? Well, we have exactly we would, what we would expect in terms of the historical evidence for Jesus. In terms of some, something from his followers, something from Josephus, a little bit from the Romans, a little bit later on from the Jews. That's exactly what we have. And really, in comparison to other historical figures of the time, we have far more evidence for Jesus than we have for other people. But that's only half the story. Even if Jesus existed, isn't it possible that the stories that we have in the Gospels are just pulled from pagan myths? And so if you do a search online, you will hear about how there was all these godmen and they'll list, you know, dozens of these godmen and heroes and they'll say they were born of a virgin. Uh, they uh, were uh, crucified on a cross. They were uh, raised on the third day. Uh, they had 12 disciples. Uh, and they'll just go on and on and on 
with all of these uh, supposed parallels between Jesus and these other godmen. And uh, they are banking on the fact that most people are not going to actually look up the myths to find out if this is true. Because when you read their accounts, you read their blog posts, you read their books, you would think that you would read the story of Horus or Dionysus in the mythology and you just see Jesus everywhere. You would see the cross, you would see the twelve, you would see this and that and everything. But that's not what we find. That's not what happens. So there's a whole bunch of them that are used, but the three most common ones that are compared to Jesus are Horus, Dionysus, and Mithras. Okay? Horus is uh, one of the Egyptian gods, and uh, he is the son of Osiris and Isis. And so you will read that Horus was born of a virgin. So we go to the, uh, the actual myths and we read how was Horus conceived. So the, the way the myth goes, uh, you have Osiris, and uh, he has a, uh, a brother named Set, and they're always at war, and they're always fighting each other. And anyways, uh, Set eventually tricks Osiris and is able to kill Osiris. Okay, and then, So Osiris is dead. Now, Isis, obviously, is very upset, okay? And one of the things that she's upset about is that they've never had a child together. So, what she does uh, is she uses her magic to enable her dead husband to be able to procreate. And so, they have intercourse. So there's a couple problems here for the virgin birth. One is, there's no reason to think that Isis and Osiris were virgins before this, right? They're a married couple for a long time before this. Secondly, how can it be a virgin birth when the conception is taking place through sexual intercourse? There's a problem with that. Uh, yes, it is, it is uh, miraculous because the husband is dead, but it is still through sex. So that, that doesn't work. Well, what about the death and resurrection of Horus? So we, uh, we read again. We continue to read about, about Horus. And uh, we find that there's a story of him when he's a child. He's left in a swamp by his mom, Isis. And so uh, he's left alone. And his uncle, Set, sends a scorpion come and sting him, poison scorpion. Uh, he's stung, and he dies from that. But that's not a crucifixion. They will say that Horus is crucified, just like Jesus, but he, that, that's not how he dies. He dies by a scorpion sting. That's very different from a crucifixion. And is he raised on the third day? No. As soon as Isis finds out about this, uh, she calls upon one of the other gods, and the god brings him back to life. And there's absolutely nothing in the myth of anything like an atonement that we find in the Christian understanding of the death of Jesus. So it's very, very different. So, so far, Horus is not looking like a good inspiration for the story of Jesus. 
Maybe we'll do better with Dionysus. And you can imagine why Dionysus would be attractive for this kind of thing, right? Because um, Dionysus was the god of wine, right? And what did Jesus drink at the institution of the Lord's Supper? Wine, okay? What are the chances in the Mediterranean that two different people would drink wine? Think about it. It's a pretty, pretty tight parallel there. So anyways, Dionysus, virgin born. Okay, here's the story of Dionysus. Uh, what happens is, if you're familiar with the um, Greek myths at all, you know that Zeus had a pretty um, healthy libido, okay? You know, he, he liked his ladies. And it wasn't enough that he was married to Hera. Uh, he liked to, uh, um, to have little rendezvous, either with other goddesses or with human females. And so it ends up that he sees this uh, woman that he finds attractive. And uh, anyways, he has sexual intercourse with her. So already, like the, the whole virgin birth part is really looking kind of shaky right now. But anyways, they have sexual intercourse. And uh, Hera, who is his divine wife, she's not all that happy about it. Because as you can imagine, I mean, no, no wife would be happy when uh, their husband is sleeping around. So she tricks this human woman who's pregnant with Dionysus, tricks her to demand to see Zeus in all his glory. And so he promises to give her whatever she asks. She says, I want to see you in all your glory. Well, you know, Hera is up to no good here. Zeus is locked into this. He has to show himself in all his glory. Anyways, it's too much. She blows up. Like, that's what happens, right? You can't be in the presence of Zeus in all his glory and survive. Not if you're a human being. You can't do it. So she explodes and is gone. But Zeus is able to, like, last minute, quickly grab Dionysus, because uh, somehow he doesn't die in the explosion, uh, grab him, and he sews uh, pre-born Dionysus to his thigh. And then Zeus carries him for the rest of the term, and then that's how Dionysus is born. But the fact is, he was still conceived through sexual intercourse. And that's not virgin born. And it's nothing like the story of the birth of Jesus. So there's a, a problem with that as well. Um, they'll also say that Dionysus was crucified and uh, resurrected. But Dionysus actually doesn't die in the stories. The closest he gets to dying is that birth that we just talked about. That's the closest you get to... The, uh, the death and resurrection of Dionysus, the fact that he's blown up before he's born and then sewn to Zeus's thigh. But you can't use that as the virgin birth and the crucifixion and resurrection. That's double dipping, right? You've got to pick which one you're going to use. So it just is so far off to say that Dionysus is the inspiration for Jesus. Maybe with Mithras, we're going to be better. Because you know what? There's some good uh, parallels with Mithras. First of all, uh, he was very popular right around the time that Jesus was, uh, was being uh, talked about. And so uh, in, in some areas of the empire, uh, 
Christianity and Mithraism were kind of competing, um, competing uh, faiths. And some will say that you know, it could have gone, that Mithraism could have been the official religion of the Roman Empire. I'm not completely convinced of that, but it certainly was popular. So Mithras is a pretty complicated background. Uh, ultimately, if you keep going back, it actually goes back to Hinduism in India. But then uh, from that, he comes to the Persian religion, of uh, Zoroastrianism, and then from the Zoroastrianism, he comes into the Roman Empire and becomes the part of this mystery religion. But the Mithras that we have as a mystery religion near the time of Jesus is so far from the Hinduism of way, way back that other than seeing the, the similarity in the names, there's like almost nothing that... Uh, that goes together. So really we need to just be looking at what we know about Mithras. So yeah, there are some encouraging things here that he could be an inspiration. Uh, it's possible that Mithras' birthday was around um, December 25th, close to that. It might not have been exactly December 25th, maybe it was 21st, whatever, but it was close. Uh, so it, it had to do with the winter solstice, uh, part of the, the worship of uh, of uh, Mithra. And it actually uh, is likely that the Christians, when they were determining the uh, birth of Jesus, when that happened, that they were borrowing it from pagan uh, uh, beliefs. Because what is easier for you? If you're going into a community, you're trying to bring the gospel, and you have this community that has this huge celebration on this particular time of the year. You can go in and say, you know what, we want you to just stop partying. Just stop it. You know, we're Christians now, and we don't have fun, so we're just stop it. So that's, that was one option they could have done. But another option was to say, okay, you really like to party at this, kind of, this time of year. That's okay, but we're going to switch things around now. Instead of celebrating the birth of Mithra or Saul Invictus or whoever it is that you are... Uh, celebrating right now, we're going to celebrate Jesus' birth now. So, yes, we'll have the party, but it's going to be all about Jesus. Because there's nothing in the scriptures that says that Jesus was born on December 25th. It's very, very unlikely that he was born December 25th. So, um, But this is an example, too, of, of how Jesus' mythicists will, will do this. They'll say, look, uh, here's the pagan support for December 25th, and Christians believe that, therefore Jesus is based on the pagan myths. But that's not what the New Testament says. Uh, it's the, the Jesus is found in the New Testament doesn't talk about that stuff at all. Okay, so anyways, we still haven't looked at his virgin birth. Was Mithras born of a virgin? Yes. Okay, sort of. He emerged from a rock, okay? That's how he was born. He emerged from a rock. Was that rock a virgin? I, you know what? I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that that rock was a virgin, okay? I'm just, you know, I, I'm feeling generous here. We're going to say that it was a virgin. But is that anything like the birth of Jesus from Mary? Is it anything like that? 
Absolutely not. Not even close. So, again, there are some that will say that Mithras was crucified and raised again. There's a problem, though. From what we have of the story of Mithras, he never dies. So he's not raised either because he never dies. He just, he does his thing, and then he's done. That's it. There was no death and resurrection. It's not a part of the story. And by the way, one of the complications for us is the actual accounts that we have of the story of Mithras are actually post-New Testament. Okay? They were written after the time of the Gospels. So there's a problem there. For us to argue that the Gospels are based on the stories of Mithras, when the stories of Mithras are written after the Gospels, you're on shaky historical ground when it comes to that. So we need to be really careful with that. The reason why they like Mithras is that there, there is some um, parallels in terms of the importance of blood. Uh, if you've ever been to a brutal worship service, it's nothing compared to what it went like for Mithras. What would happen is they would take the worshiper, they would go into this pit, and above the pit, they would have maybe like a grating, and they would have a bull. And what they would do is they would cut open the bull's throat, and the blood would pour out onto the worshiper below. And so they would be bathed in the blood. So, you know, think, think about the song of, you know, are you washed in the blood? Well, the, the worshippers of Mithras were washed in the blood. But it wasn't the blood of Mithras, it was the blood of the bull. In fact, that's the only death that takes place in the story of Mithras, is the death of the bull. And then in some cases, the, the bull comes back to life. But that's not something that happens with Mithras. So, again, they, they are assuming that you're not going to read the actual myths. Because if you did, you'd find that there is no comparison at all between these God-men and their stories and the stories of Jesus. So, And if one of the arguments against the Gospels was it's too late, I mean, you just said Mithras is even after that. Yep, oh yeah, absolutely, yep. So that argument just gets thrown to Oh yes, absolutely, yep. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, some of the, um, like the versions of the story of Osiris and Isis that they use are... Uh, the versions that were written by Plutarch, and Plutarch is not writing until like uh, 120 AD, I think, around there. He definitely into the second century. So, but they'll use that as a source. So, uh, that's one of the things that Jesus mythicists again are banking on. That you're not going to look at the dates of texts and sources. They don't want you to do that. So they will. Uh, they might refer to some of these Gnostic Gospels as original versions of the story of Jesus, and that our canonical Gospels are these later um, forgeries, these later uh, accounts where the, the, uh, the Catholic or Orthodox Church it, you know, tried to come up with their own version of it. But really, we should go to the Gnostic Gospels to know what Jesus was originally like or what the first Christians thought he was like. But you can't do that because the dating of them. It just doesn't work. One of the, um, the things that's come up is that for a long time, uh, scholars, New Testament scholars and historians, would not even respond to this because it's so crazy. Like, 
historians don't do this kind of thing. That's not how they do history. Um, it's just, it's so far-fetched. And so scholars were not doing anything about it as well, at all. And so this caused problems because there were lay people who were um, reading this stuff and buying into it. They were believing it. There are people, and lots of them, who believe these things. And uh, so, uh, for example, I read one book uh, about this, and near the end he says, oh, oh, and by the way, as you're investigating these claims, whatever you do, um, don't talk to pastors, don't talk to seminary professors, and do not talk to Egyptologists, because they are all biased, and so you won't get the truth from them. So keep away from them. But here are some other people, uh, you know, some self-taught people who are claiming these things, and then you can, then you can believe that uh, this is the, the truth. Um, so the, the way I got interested in this is I was a pastor. Well, I am a pastor still, but I, I was a pastor in a particular town, and there was an author in our town who wrote a book and who, that ended up being a bestseller in Canada, claiming all of these things. This guy was a former, uh, a former Anglican priest. Uh, he was a former uh, uh, professor at a seminary here in Toronto. And, uh, and anyways, he believed this stuff, and he wrote about it in a very convincing way, and people were buying into it. And people in my church were like, you know, what, what's going on? What are you doing? Anyways, I ended up, uh, I was studying at uh, McMaster Divinity College at the time, uh, with uh, Stanley Porter, who is uh, a New Testament professor, but also the president of that school. Anyways, we ended up uh, co-writing a book. So we wrote a book called Unmasking the Pagan Christ, and we responded to this, these ideas. And uh, that was a lot of fun to do. And the, the, the most satisfying part of it was actually one day I was sitting in my office at the church, and this couple walk into my office, and I'd never seen them before, and uh, they come in, and the guy shakes my hand. I'm like, okay, you know, what's, what's up? And he said that he had been sort of a, a lay pastor in his, his church, and he had read these Jesus myth claims, and he was ready to ditch his faith. Because if, if it's true that there was no Jesus and all of this stuff was made up based on pagan myths, then, like, why bother? So he was ready to, to ditch the whole thing. And anyway, somehow he came across our book, so he read our book, and he was reading it on vacation, and he completed the book, and then he looked at the back of the book and found out that I was pastoring in the same town that he was having his vacation. So he quickly came over to the church to see if I was in my office, and said, you know, I'm feeling my faith is being built up again. Like, there's a good, solid historical reason to believe in Jesus. And I'm ready to, you know, be involved in ministry again. And, and, and he was just encouraged in his faith. I thought, wow, this, you know, that makes it worth the whole thing. Uh, as to why people believe it, I think it has a lot to do with the, um, the attractiveness of conspiracy theories. I think that, that there's a lot in common with that. Because uh, they'll, they'll put a lot of effort into uh, blaming it on Constantine. So Constantine was a... Uh, a Roman uh, emperor who made 
Christianity a legal religion in the, uh, in the 4th century. People will say he made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. He didn't do that, but he did, he did stop the persecution and made it a legal religion. And through Constantine, it ultimately, the, the state and the church came together too much. And so many Christians, even today, will say that you know, just about everything is Constantine's fault. Like, if you can't find parking at church, that's Constantine. You know, he's, if he hadn't have... It's just crazy. But anyways, you can spin that and say, look, there's, a, there's a, a conspiracy here. Like, people originally knew the spiritual, as, spiritual nature of Jesus. They knew that it was just another way of telling the same kind of myth that every culture has said. You know, they all knew it, and then Constantine came in and forced his view that kind of historicized Jesus and made it into this literal thing that it was never meant to be. So that's, that's kind of what happened. So people are attracted by that. And, and uh, you know, it, it's kind of a, a modern Gnosticism, right? If Gnosticism is about having secret knowledge, I mean, how many people, you know, share something on, on Facebook or, you know, some YouTube video and do you want to hear the true story of why this is the way it is? You know, now the truth can be told. You know, the, the authorities, uh, you know, the man, we have been trying to to uh, hold back the truth, but we're going to tell you the way it really is. There's something really attractive about that. I mean, it's the, uh, I mean, look at, there's an increase now in the uh, people who believe in a flat earth. I mean, it's because of the internet, partially, uh, is um, the people are finding that attractive. That You know, NASA, they faked the, the moon landings. We've never had anything in space to take a picture of, uh, of, you know, that's all uh, been generated uh, and, and through photography and just, uh, it's all stuff like that, right? Like, that's increasing because there's something attractive about that. The funniest thing I've seen on Facebook is uh, uh, the Flat Earth Society has chapters all around the globe. Think about that, all around the globe. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty wild. I mean, and, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, Two who believe that 9/11 was an inside job, that, that was not a terrorist attack at all, and uh, I definitely don't want to get into that kind of stuff. But there's something attractive to people. I know I have friends who believe that, and you know they have the the real knowledge of how things really went down. So that's that's part of what's going on. I think it's more of a sociological thing than a historical thing. There, like you can really count on uh, one hand those who have PhDs in a relevant subject who believe this on one hand, okay? So that's, it's, it's pretty bad. But the thing is, you can sell books doing this. If you go around speaking on this, people will pay you to hear this, and you can make good money. 